Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, the Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We have a special guest with us today, well-known author, historian, professor, and podcaster, Scott Rank, who hosts History Unplugged. You might remember him from our interview last year. And he's well-known for his knowledge of the history of the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. Today we're talking about his latest book, which was just released, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. And these guys were and are total nut jobs, I guarantee you. You're going to be amazed with their stories. Scott, welcome to 1001 Heroes. It looks like you've been staying busy. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate that. It's great to be here. What inspired you to write History's Nine Most Insane Rulers? I think part of it came from the discussion that we're having in the second decade of the 21st century that some people are saying our politicians are more mentally ill than they've ever been in the past. And with the 2020 election, I think this will be a topic that will come up a lot where people on the left might say that Donald Trump has something like narcissistic personality disorder or people on the right might <clears throat> excuse me, say that Joe Biden could have early onset dementia. Now, Whatever the truth of those claims, and without getting into any politics there, my argument is if those two are your standard for a mentally ill ruler, someone who's insane, <laughs> then you are not dreaming big enough at all. Uh, I, I would put the standard more at if Joe Exotic from Tiger King were your president or your emperor, what would that be like? And in the past, we did have people that were high functioning, but completely out of step with reality, such as a recent president of Turkmenistan who had an 80-foot-tall golden statue of himself that always rotated to face the sun. So what I try to do in the book is to look at what would it actually look like to be ruled by somebody like that who had no check on their power, a medieval king, an emperor. How would you survive those situations? But I think also to give some perspective that however eccentric our presidents or prime ministers or other people are today, and many of them are very eccentric, it was a lot worse in the past. <laughs> Who do you think was the most insane of them all? And I know there's probably a lot to choose from. Yeah, I mean, there's anyone I look at in my book, you could choose uh, Emperor Caligula, Ludwig of Bavaria, Idi Amin. But maybe the most fun to write about was uh, that president of Turkmenistan I mentioned, Akbar Turkmenbashi. It was an honorary title that was given to him that literally means father of all Turkmen. It would be like if a president today in America said, I declare by decree of the Senate that my name is um, America Father as my last name. Uh, so just some background about him. He was the leader of the Soviet Republic of Turkmenistan at the end of the Soviet Union and then was Turkmenistan's first president in 1991 and ruled till 2006. And because he grew up in the era of Soviet propaganda, I think he tried to follow the guidelines of Joseph Stalin, but then he outdid Joseph Stalin in Stalinism. So he had massive posters of himself in every city. Then he renamed days of the week and months of the year after himself and his dead mother. He renamed cities. He renamed an asteroid after himself. And there's almost this childlike innocence about what he was doing that he really seems to think that this is for the good of Turkmenistan because he's giving them a person to rally around. Happens to be himself, but you know. And one other thing about him that is really off the rails is even though by most accounts he wasn't completely literate, he managed to write a holy book that 
he wanted to have compete directly with the Bible and the Quran. And he claimed that God appeared to him in a dream and said that anyone who reads this book three times will automatically go to heaven. So if you were in Turkmenistan in the early 2000s, if you wanted basically any job, you had to pass a test based on knowledge of this book. You'd, if you were a truck driver, you had to pass a test on it. If you were a doctor. Uh, so he really seemed to think that he was helping people by what he was doing, but just this totally bizarre cult of personality that he created. Tell me something about King George III. Did losing that battle with for America drive him crazy? Well, he had it together better than a lot of people. His earliest episode, some people think, was in the 1760s, but that was only a minor flare-up. The major flare-up in the 1780s, where he um, lost control of the throne very briefly, that was right after the Revolutionary War. Um, you know, I'd say that that's a really good question, and... In the grand scope of the British Empire, from the perspective of Britain, losing the colonies wasn't quite as big as we in America think, since that was sort of our year zero moment. But Britain actually rose in power afterwards. It is true, after the American revolutions, he starts to misidentify people. He has conversations with dead relatives. He uh, there, There's some accounts, I don't think these are very reliable, that he would shake hands with tree branches and think it was Frederick the Great. Uh, then later on, um, when he really loses it in the 1810s, 1820s, which is the basis for the uh, play in the movie The Madness of King George, he's babbling incoherent for a long time. Um, so, you know, I maybe you can make an argument that the American Revolution had something to do with it, but hard to say. You know, he's been in the news a lot lately, even today, is uh, Kim Jong-un, leader of North Korea. Do you think he's just ducking uh, COVID-19, or do you seriously think something's <laughs> wrong with him? And also, uh, tell us what kind of nutball this guy is. Yeah, so Kim Jong-un, who knows if he's alive or dead? That's the great thing about a dictatorship. You know, you could be dead for weeks, and you don't have to announce it until it's convenient. So uh, his father, Kim Jong-il, he was following in the footsteps of his grandfather, who established the uh, Democratic Republic of North Korea. Let's give it its right title. And... For them, there's, there's an element, too, kind of like the leader of Turkmenistan, where they partially think what they're doing is for the good of the people, although I think the ill clan is uh, far more sociopathic. There's an idea in Korea of Jush, that the, the national spirit, that um, the leader is sort of the representation of the collective will of the people. So when Kim Jong-il says something that if you or I were to say it, people would laugh at us, and they should laugh at us, like... The first time I ever golfed, I hit 18 holes in one, which Kim Jong-il says. Yeah, people should laugh at you if you say that, because that's ridiculous. When Kim Jong-il says it, there is this gets into the realm of megalomania, that lots of people, rulers who you think, how on earth can they possibly lead their country when they seem like they've completely lost it? Like Muammar Gaddafi, who gives speeches for hours and hours and hours, and Kim Jong-il did. When you've successfully liquidated and killed any political opposition, this is where you can enter into a fantasy land where you think what you're saying and what you're doing is for the good of the people, even though it's ridiculous. And one other thing about Kim Jong-il, the way that he and Kim Jong-un, too, have led North Korea, it really does seem like they used 1984 as a how-to guide. Now, when we say that today, we're almost always exaggerating because 1984 is a complete nightmare of dystopia. But if there's any country on earth that has that, it's North Korea where, at least during Kim Jong-il's reign, 
you had to have a picture of him and his father in every household. Radios were set up with the frequency tuned to government radio that had to be played for official announcements. Hundreds of thousands of people were in prison camps. Um, if there was any industry that North Korea, Korea excelled at was prison camps. People frog march and forced to attend these massive celebrations for the uh, birthday of the dear leader. Um, and again, going to the mind of a megalomaniac, when you do things like that, any reasonable person would be horrified at the suffering they're causing for millions of people. But for a megalomaniac, they think, oh, I am doing a good thing because I am the virtuous, righteous leader and I represent the will of the people. So, of course, they would want to do these things. How did these guys stay in power? I mean, they were they were psychotic, schizophrenic, brutal. Did they have the brains to stay in power? Were these intelligent guys? Yeah, it's a good question. And there have been a lot of insane rulers throughout history. Most of the time, kingdoms or nations knew how to deal with it. If you were a kingdom and you had to have your son on the throne, even if he couldn't do it, um, because otherwise your dynasty collapses, you would appoint a regent. You would appoint an uncle or some other advisor that would rule in all but name, and that's how you handle it. But, uh, and most of the time, like you're saying, they were mostly ineffective, like uh, Ottoman Sultan Ibrahim I, who spent all of his time in the harem, and he wanted to decorate the palace from floor to ceiling in expensive fur, and he forced people to pay this huge tax while they were in a really expensive war with Venice, and that eventually led to him being overthrown. But once in a while, you do have uh, an insane ruler who has the overlapping Venn diagram of having some sort of mental illness, but also being competent enough to lead. This could be someone like Ivan the Terrible in Russia, or Ivan the Great, as he's known in Russia today. What he does is liquidate all forms of civil society or uh, any type of rival political faction. And the other important factor, this is something that Idi Amin did in Uganda in the 60s and 70s, is having armies of uh, informants, a lot of secret police. What this does in a society is make everyone paranoid that you're not going to go too far out and speak openly against this person or try to link up with others that would want to overthrow them because you don't know who's going to report on you. Maybe your neighbor won't, who's been your friend for a long time, but you don't know if his daughter won't or the boyfriend of the daughter, if they're also dislike this person or not. So there's this massive self-censorship that takes place where people are too scared to rise up and do anything this is what somebody like Idi Amin, who killed hundreds of thousands of Ugandans, um, up to three or four percent of the population of Uganda, allowing him to stay in power for over a decade because there was this chilling effect on everybody. Bavaria's mad King Ludwig II. Tell us a little bit about him and those and those midnight sleigh rides in blizzards. Yeah, yeah, he was my favorite. Um, I think he's sort of the hero of the book in a way. Uh, so Ludwig was interesting because. He was a king at a time when, in the late 1800s, kings don't have the power they do in the Middle Ages, but they were something more than the ceremonial figureheads that Prince Charles or the Queen of England is today. Uh, so Ludwig grew up pretty isolated. He didn't have playmates. Uh, that was sort of by design that a royal shouldn't intermix with commoners. So he was left on his own. He didn't have much except for poetry and fantasy books that he would read and German myths like Tannhauser out of the Middle Ages. So he was a dreamer and 
he basically used his family's centuries of accumulated wealth to build a bunch of fairy tale like castles that are completely impractical in the 1800s. One of them, Neuschwanstein, that even if you don't know what that is, you've seen it. It's the inspiration for Disney World. And uh, on any 500 piece puzzle, you'll probably get one of Neuschwanstein, that castle that's on top of that big rock. Uh, when you were mentioning about the Midnight Sleigh Rides, his imagination made a lot of people wonder if uh, he couldn't interpret, distinguish fantasy from reality. And he was deposed for those very reasons. He imagined himself as sort of this medieval king, this this dashing hero who would go on sleigh rides. He would order his uh, servants to take him on these sleigh rides through the Alps at high speeds, sometimes in blizzards. Then he would hop out and have people set up a pavilion to have a picnic. Uh, other things that he would do is one of his castles, Heron Kimsey, it's kind of a miniature version of Versailles. And he would dine alone, but there would be three or four places set for Mary Antoinette, King Louis Fourteenth. He would have imaginary conversations with the people there. He would make toasts. He would laugh at jokes that his imaginary friend said. And his servants are just looking at each other out of the corner of their eyes of what is going on. Uh, so he just was, I don't know, kind of like a, a very wealthy child, uh, a grown up, of course, in a gigantic playhouse. But these playhouses were castles of his own construction. But I will say for Ludwig, um, to his credit, he loved the arts and he had a dream of taking Bavaria and transforming it from this little backwater German state and making it the cultural and artistic powerhouse of Germany. So he gives all this money to uh, set up artistic academies. He's a patron of Richard Wagner and Richard Wagner's ring cycle was completed because of him. And if you go to Southern Germany, if you look in your Frommer's guide, it will always, always, always mention these castles. So the symbol of Germany is essentially a lot of things in Bavaria. We all, a lot of Americans think that all Germans wear Lederhosen or Dirndls. And if you talk to a German, they just shake their head in disgust and say, no, that's, that's just Bavaria. That'd be like thinking that all Americans wear 10 gallon hats and bolo ties. You know, that's, that's Texas. That's something different. But Ludwig did it. I mean, he put his stamp on Bavaria, and we associate Germany with Bavaria. So I think he succeeded. Tell me a little bit about Ottoman Sultan Ibrahim the One and his archery practice. <laughs> Ibrahim, um, he he had it rough growing up. Um, the Ottoman Empire is a rough place because, very long story short, if the first son. Uh, uh, the first son of a sultan didn't automatically become the next sultan. It could be any son. So there's some pretty nasty rivalry. Um, earlier in the Ottoman Empire, the son who became sultan would have all of his brothers killed so that they couldn't rival him for the throne. Uh, by the time of Ibrahim, their solution was uh, if someone, other brothers of the sultan were basically locked in nice areas of the palace in Istanbul. They were under quarantine. Well, we're all going crazy with a month of quarantine. Imagine being under quarantine from when you're born until when you're 20. That that was Ibrahim. And so someone like that isn't really cut out to be able to lead a transcontinental empire, which the Ottoman Empire was. He was paranoid his whole life because he expected that any moment he might be killed, another brother would try to claim the throne and wipe him out. Once he's released and once he's made sultan, 
it's sort of like he's making up for lost time. And he decides, whatever I'm going to do, I am going to fulfill my desires. And he had a lot of uh, sycophants and um, brown nosers who were around him who wanted to curry favor with him. And one time he asked an advisor, you know, it seems like you agree with whatever it is I say. Why is that? And he basically said, you are the Allah has appointed you to be the sovereign. And whatever your desires are, even if it doesn't make sense, there's some sort of hidden wisdom to it. He thought, OK, that makes sense. So whatever I want to do has some sort of divine stamp of approval on it. So he would, like you were saying, practice archery on his court subjects and shoot bows and arrows at them as if he imagined he's hunting. He liked full-figured women and asked his advisors to find the largest woman in the empire they could. They found a woman weighing 400 pounds, which is very large in the 1600s, and she became a favorite addition to the harem. Uh, he suspected that some of the other women in the harem were scheming against him, so he had hundreds uh, drowned in the Bosphorus. And he wanted the palace to be decorated floor to ceiling in expensive furs because he, kind of like Ludwig, likened himself to this ruler out of the past, this ruler out of antiquity. And uh, eventually he's deposed uh, because people can't stand him and he's bankrupting the empire. But due to the weird system of the Ottoman Empire, this is how he gets on the throne in the first place because you have to have your family member on the throne to keep your dynasty going, even if they're crazy, because if you don't, your dynasty falls apart. So that's why he was where he was. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now back to our show. At its height, what geographical area did the Ottoman empire take in and also uh, what caused their downfall? And, and I'd like to add, what did they leave behind that we benefit from today or that the world benefits from today? I know it doesn't directly uh, dovetail with your book, but I know you're an expert on that subject, and I'd kind of like to hear you give a few minutes to that. Sure, be glad to. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was big at its height. It stretched all the way into Hungary, and I'm talking about a period from the 1500s to 1600s, so all the way into Central Europe at the height of its power, and that includes the Balkans, southeastern Europe, up into Romania, Transylvania. It controlled North Africa through some vassal states to what is today modern Turkey. It controlled the Gulf of Arabia, the entire Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, that whole area down there, Mecca, Medina, those two cities. Uh, then it goes up into the Caucasus, Armenia, Georgia, up around the Caucasus, which is sandwiched between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And then all the way around uh, what would be a good chunk of Ukraine, too. And there were construction projects at the height of its power, plans to do things like link the Volga River and the Azov River. So it'd be kind of like a Panama Canal, but for the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, very powerful. Many in Europe thought that the Ottoman Empire was going to completely conquer them. Martin Luther wrote a treatise on how to keep calm and carry on if you're under the control of the Turkish Sultan. What leads to its downfall, that's a very complicated question. Um, historians aren't sure, but I mean, one of the reasons is that uh, trade routes move uh, with the discovery of the New World. You're not moving in between the Ottoman Empire, so that's a loss of wealth. Uh, the rise of Russia, that's a new rival up there. And for reasons that are we still don't completely know, uh, technology and science 
rises like crazy in Europe and it completely dwarfs the Ottoman Empire's military ability and they just lose a bunch of wars and that's what uh, causes it to downfall. And plague, I think plague just decimated a lot of them. Is that correct? And also and also the constant clash with the uh, Christian culture. Would that be uh, ac- accurate? Yeah, uh, you're right. Plagues uh, in the 1600s, that happened all the time. And uh, I did a recent podcast episode about what different people did during quarantines. And one sultan loved to go on hunting trips, which he would always do when he, if a plague broke out in Istanbul, you'd leave the city and uh, try to ride it out that way. The Christian population, it, it's tricky to say because there were a lot of Christians in the Ottoman Empire, like Armenians and Greeks. Some had high government posts, but at the end of the empire, that type of cooperation collapses and you get the Armenian genocide of the 1915 and it, it it's weird it's like it it was possible to be a, a government official if you're a Christian 1890 but not 1915 um, just due to how the empire breaks down and the, the question you asked about legacies that is interesting um, so the first one is the word Ottoman which if you say you're an Ottoman historian and say oh you study footstools that's cool um, <laughs> yeah so I want to clarify that the, the stool came from the empire, not the other way around. Um, <laughs> it's called that because in the 1800s, it became fashionable to have these large, plush, cushy bits of furniture, big chairs, big stools, and you'd call any of furniture like that a la Turka in the Turkish style. Uh, but the foot, the, the foot rest is just what we have left. Uh, music stylings. Um, there's Classical music has all sorts of Turkish marches which are usually very heavy on percussion because the musicians and uh, Ottoman military bands had big percussion instruments. Marching bands come from our descendants of this type of military Turkish music. Mm. So if you've been in marching band, which I was in high school, then that has to do with the Turks. So Sousa was Uh, inspired by that? (laughs) Could be. Yeah. Um, He, he didn't realize it. And there's a lot of things that we're influenced by and Sometimes we take direct inspiration, like the founding fathers borrowing Greek ideas about democracy. Uh, sometimes we take indirect inspiration. Things affect us, and we don't know that it affected us, but it still does affect us. And I think there's a lot of that style of indirect inspiration that the Turks have today. And, and, to, and to conclude with that, the one word that I'm aware of that comes from Turkish, that is a Turkish origin word used in English, is yogurt. So have them <laughs> thank that. for yogurt. So that didn't come from Armenia. They um they were the people that brought it over to the United States. Uh, they set up a lot of the early yogurt industries. Uh, so that is true. But the word at least is Turkish. Nature versus nurture. Were insane rulers born that way? Or did they go mad because of their upbringing? It's a little bit of both. Um some of the rulers had traumatic childhoods. Uh, one person I haven't mentioned much is Emperor Caligula. And um, he's actually, uh, his real name was known as Gaius. Caligula means little soldier boots because his mother made him uh, soldier costumes when he was a toddler. And that's because he grew up in a war zone. And he's been diagnosed with everything in the book from bipolar, schizophrenic, megalomaniac um and he did things like appoint his horse senator and um, all sorts of things Uh, but one could argue that growing up in a war zone and witnessing his father uh, get murdered in a political hit could be something that affected him Uh, ottoman sultan ibrahim i mentioned his background too or 
Charles VI of France, who thought that he was made of glass, uh, he ruled during the Hundred Years' War. And growing up, before he was officially coronated as King of France, he's watching political murders happen left and right. You have a favorite uncle who's killed by another uncle who's a duke. These types of things can really traumatize someone. Ludwig of Bavaria, he didn't witness that same type of trauma, but because he was isolated by other children growing up, due to the idea that there's sort of a purity of royals, he's kind of affected in the same way that ancient Egyptian rulers were, where brothers and sisters married each other, the idea that you're keeping this pure bloodline, but actually ruining someone, the similar sort of thing with how he's raised. Uh, so sometimes it can be trauma that is only latently expressed a long time. Other times it can be biological. A lot of people think King George III had porphyria, which is a blood disease, and lots of other European royals did because many of them are very faintly interrelated and second, third, fourth cousins all over the place because of the intermarrying among the royal class in Europe. Uh, other times I think it can just be um, self-inflicted with megalomania, like Turkmenbashi from Turkmenistan or Kim Jong-il, uh, Ugandan President Idi Amin, who thought that he had supernatural invincibility, that you're in power for so long. And megalomania typically isn't something at the beginning of a reign, but when you've been in power for a year, a decade, several decades, there's no one around you to tell you no. It's sort of like celebrities when they say things that we think are delusional because they have assistants and publicists and people who basically don't tell them no, and they're always making them think that what they're saying they're doing is incredibly intelligent and astute, even if it's ridiculous. You can't tell them that, because if you do, you'll get fired. If you tell Kim Jong-il he's ridiculous, then you're killed, or you're hopefully killed first, not tortured, then killed. So I think that's how megalomania can set in with these people who just seem completely ridiculous. Yeah, your your book is fascinating because you take the time to to take a look at the addictive nature of power and the effects that it has on those who hold on to it for too long. Um, tell us, uh, share a little bit uh, about that and maybe and maybe tie that in a little bit with uh, Putin, if you don't think you're risking your life in doing so. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to get Russian hackers on my site. We'll see what happens. Um, well, if we're going to talk about Putin, hey, let's look at another Russian. So Ivan the Terrible. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if, um, you know, some people think that Russia has challenges with democracy because it's such a large area that you have to be a little bit heavy handed to keep everything together. Uh, Ivan the Terrible, he starts his reign somewhat well. Um, he's always contesting with boyars. They're the landed aristocracy of Russia. He's trying to balance ruling Russia with dealing with some of these entrenched interests in the country. But over time, the, the most sympathetic take on Ivan is that to lead Russia successfully at the time he's in power, he can't do it in the way that Russia is currently set up. What I mean by that is Russia has a lot of challenges in the 1500s. They're still under the influence of the descendant states of Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan and his sons conquer Russia in the 1200s, killed millions of people. So many people are killed that global CO2 levels drop because abandoned farmland returns to forest. The daughter states of the Mongol Empire still control Russia. 
there are still raids of Crimean Tatars that would come through Moscow and other cities, kill thousands of men, take thousands of women, capture thousands of women, sell them on slave markets in Central Asia. What Ivan needs to do is successfully secure his borders and no longer be under any sort of control of the Crimean Tatars. Uh, to do that, he has to liquidate opposition. And probably the most notorious thing that he does during his reign is the siege of Nov Novgorod or the massacre of Novgorod, where he suspects that this city is um, going to form an alliance with some Eastern European powers up in the Baltic area. And he goes with his retinue, his Oprichnina, his independent state, and slaughters tortures, murders tens of thousands of people, liquidates almost anyone in the city that has any suspicion whatsoever of not being loyal to him. And there's a lot of stories about Ivan I don't think are true, like that he always traveled with 50 or 100 maidens and would deflower them as he traveled. That sounds a little bit over the top. Although stuff like what Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-un do don't seem that far off, so who knows. Um, but that's something that Ivan could be an example that when we look at people and think that they're mentally insane, and I would call Ivan a high-functioning sociopath. He's indifferent to other people's pain. We don't live in those times. And something that we don't have to do in the 21st century could have been necessary in the 16th century. So if we're going to compare him to Vladimir Putin, Putin himself, he's dealing with a post-Cold War area of a nation with decaying infrastructure that is... There's corruption all over Russia, and some would argue that it's better to have a strong-handed ruler who is competent rather than to just pretend that you have a democracy and then you're just opening up the nation to a bunch of competing kleptocrats and oligarchs who are going to strip mine Russia for everything it's worth. So that's the most charitable take on Ivan, and that's my most charitable take on Putin. Is there a connection between genius and madness? That's an interesting question because obviously having mental illness doesn't make somebody a bad person. There are millions of people across the world who struggle with various levels of mental illness. And some historians have argued that the greatest wartime leaders that we've ever had had mental illness issues, but it was because of that struggle, not in spite of it, that made them who they were. There's a great book about Abraham Lincoln called Lincoln's Melancholy by Joshua Schenck. And the point is that Lincoln suffered what was then called melancholia. We will call it depression. He was very arguably suicidal in his life. But it was because he had that inner battle throughout his life that he could deal with the outer battle of the Civil War and not wilt under the harsh light of day. Uh, Winston Churchill suffered depression. Martin Luther King Jr. attempted suicide. But those struggles, arguably, the way that they dealt with it and the way they became better because of it made them the person they were who could lead through the most difficult situations, World War II, uh, bombing of Berlin, civil rights struggle, anything. And some of the people who could have benefited from their struggles with mental illness, like George III, is someone who benefited England. He was a great patron of Baroque music. He said that that was something that calmed him down and um, when he was going through different bouts of mental illness. Also, he was he enjoyed literature, and that was something that he may have used to help orient him. 
John Adams, when he visited Great Britain, said that he had a fantastic library, George III, and that became the core of the British National Library. And Ludwig, like I talked about, he was a starry-eyed dreamer. He you know, bankrupted Bavaria, but he made these castles that are synonymous with southern Germany. And he was a patron of Wagner. Uh, so a lot like the uh, Renaissance Italian patrons, the Medicis, the Borgias, who gave us the great art and works of art for all time, Ludwig did the same thing. So the line between genius and madness, looking at the world in a very unconventional way and following whims wherever you go, I think what separates uh, Abraham Lincoln from a Turkmenbashi or a Kim Jong-il is that mental illness, it doesn't determine character, but it can reveal character. Where if you're a terrible person, then that sort of strips it away and puts it at its core. If there's innate greatness in you, then the struggles with mental illness, your greatness will cause you to overcome that and develop even more resilience. So um, I don't know. It's Some have argued that our, our level-headed, milk-toast presidents like Millard Fillmore or Jimmy Carter. Um, Jimmy Carter's a great guy, but I don't think anyone's putting him as the best president that America has ever had. Um, so that's how I would see a, a link there with madness and genius. Who do you think were the best three presidents, United States presidents? Oh, man. Uh, that's that. Oh, wow. Well, caught you off guard I, there. I know, but forgive right. me. Yeah, I am. Um, OK, I'm going to give two that I think most people would agree on. And then the last one, I'm going to throw a curveball. So uh, I am a huge fan of Teddy Roosevelt, um, both as a president and as a man, um, as a person. There are so many qualities that you you can't run out of stories about Teddy Roosevelt, how he was a rancher and he managed to find cowboys who are trying to steal his boat and frog march them 36 hours back to a town before he, uh, without sleeping so that he could put them in jail. He was shot. And then he went on to give a 90 minute speech after he was shot, uh, going to the Amazon on honey expeditions, staffing the, filling the Smithsonian Institute with animals that he attacked. But, uh, the first president to win the Nobel peace prize, he negotiated peace between Russia and Japan after their war. He, understood what America needed to do as it was growing into a global power up to World War I. Uh, George Washington, the United States wouldn't exist without him when he successfully won the Revolutionary War and then did what no other European leader was doing at the time, and that was relinquish power and retire instead of making himself president for life. George III said he must be the greatest man of his age. So the presidential system we have where we take for granted that when a president loses and he relinquishes power and there's not a riot afterwards and there's not a civil war, we take that for granted. Other nations can't take that for granted. Um, now, lastly, my curveball. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say 10th president John Tyler. Okay. Uh, okay. John, most people rank him as one of the worst because his own party hated him. He um, was censured by Republicans. He as uh, he didn't do very much at all as president. There's no longstanding legislation to his name. He's really known for vetoing more than anything. Um, but the reason they rank him so poorly is because of th they think that a good president has to do something, has to do a big thing. John Tyler took the opposite. He was a very strict uh, constitutionalist and thought my the job of the president is to maintain the office. I'm more of a 
I'm not a traffic cop that goes out and does things in metals. I'm a, or I'm sorry, I'm not a toll booth operator, someone that you have to pass through and everything flows through me. I'm a traffic cop. I intervene if there's a problem. If not, I just make sure the government is functioning because the will of the people isn't represented through the president. The will of the people is represented through the legislature. And I want to honor the will of the people. So, you know, I think in history, we don't sing the stories of the people who didn't do things when mm-hmm. we always talk about people who do things and the headline sometimes, makers. Right. But sometimes people who do things muck things up so bad that it would have had better had they not done something. So that's my curveball answer of John Tyler. <laughs> I think it's a great answer. I'm uh, I'm very much with you on uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And there's there's a lot more we could add there. It's just amazing when you start thinking about him. He's the one who protected so many million acres of national uh, park land, designated as uh, park land still today, and, and saved a lot of that from development. He's the one who really built our U.S. Navy uh, and demanded that we maintain a strong presence uh, throughout the world, started thinking of beyond our borders. Uh, just uh, He was also a real family guy, from what I understand, when when uh, heads of state would come to visit him at his home up on the northern shore of, of Long Island, his, <laughs> his kids were always there. Uh, he didn't just shove them aside. They, it was very much family all the way. If you were going to be going to see Roosevelt, expect to have the kids uh, all around you. I thought it was he's an interesting guy and uh, yeah, a good president. Yeah, in terms of personal character, I think he really takes the cake. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now... Back to our show, Scott. Uh, you've got a you've got a fantastic story here, and there's a lot to it. A lot beyond what we've discussed today. Can you give our listeners some hints as to as to what we haven't talked about today, and, and give them some good reasons to buy this book? Uh, thank you. Well, I try to put in as many stories as possible because I mean, come on, that's the most fun part of this. Like uh, Emperor Caligula, he makes all of his family members, basically elevates them to the level of godhood, orders them to build temples for them. He um, dresses up like gods and sits in temples, uh, trying to build up a cult of worship. Ottoman Sultan Ibrahim uh, I, he uh, liked to go around in gardens pretending he was a horse and have people ride on his back. Ludwig of Bavaria, I mentioned all the imaginary conversations that he had with people. He would also... Um, order tens of thousands of candles to be lit in his palace and would walk through completely by himself and have orchestral performances set up where he was always an audience of one. Uh, president And lastly, President of Turkmenistan, uh, Turkmenbashi, he had his own brand of vodka, Turkmenbashi vodka. So he was a pitch man in addition to everything else. So yeah, tons and tons of stories I try to pack in there. And uh, people can find it if they just go to mostinsanerulers.com. And then that links to Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other places. Scott Rank, thank you so much for being with us today. We've enjoyed talking to you. What what projects do you have going on for the future? I'm going to be doing a podcast series about World War I coming up. And that'll be on the History Unplugged podcast. Well, Scott, thanks for being with us today. We've enjoyed having you on. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.